It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Sunday Civics. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And it's another Sunday morning that I get to be with those of you who showed up to class this morning. Really appreciate it. If you're listening later, welcome to you as well. Thank you so for very much, excuse me, for tuning in. And I have a very, very good conversation to bring to you this morning. But first, I have a, com- a confession to make. Yep, I have to confess. I stopped watching the 24-hour cable news networks 90% of the time. (laughs) I still watch it for like breaking news or something happens and you need to be tuned in and understand what's happening live or breaking news or things like that. But, you know, I don't have it on all day anymore. It is not my first stop in the morning when I'm trying to figure out what happens in the world. And if you notice, those of you who have been following me for a while, I also haven't appeared on MSNBCs, which I used to do, and sometimes CNN. I haven't appeared on those either in a while. And it was because I was realizing that majority of the news that I was consuming was based in opinion, was based upon a little bit of information and then getting everybody's opinion on something or what does it mean. And I wanted to go back to a place where I could be disciplined in one, reading news instead of just consuming news from video clips or Facebook clips or the 24-hour news cycle channels. I mean, I, I wanted to discipline myself and go back to reading news. And so I would get up and after taking the kids to school and whether I was working from home or working at my office, I would then get my coffee, my tea, whatever I you know wanted. And I would go through my curated Apple News section, which I have some subscriptions to newspapers from all over. And then also veer into my local news and particularly my local Black newspapers and be disciplined to read and garner the facts of what happened on a situation. And instead of before an audience and trying to come up with the sound bite that might get clipped and sent around on social media, that I can begin to develop my opinion based upon what I was reading, the facts of information. I also had the ability to do further research and see where a source came from or, you know, go. And if I was reading something on a poll, maybe, you know, actually go to the poll and see detailed information about it and cross tabs. And besides what is being presented as a story of a poll or of a issue, I can read the whole thing. It took a lot of discipline because we collectively have transitioned into this getting our news from bits and pieces of it and also people's opinion of it. And so over the late fall to the winter, it took some discipline in order to do that. But here I am. And as we're going into this 
end of summer, into the fall, into the new year, where we're going to be in another heightened political season, I thought about how can I properly prepare you, those of you who are listening, how can I arm you not to do what I did, because everybody doesn't have the ability to do that. You don't have the time and or you're doing something else. You don't live politics on a daily basis like I do because it's my job. And it's also what I do from a community standpoint. Some of you have you know, different jobs and different lifestyles, but I believe you should be armed with tools and resources of how to evaluate the information that you are being bombarded with. And not for it not to be a lot of homework. I'm not trying to turn you into college students or to journalism students, but I do want you to have just a centering moment because we live in this age of misinformation and disinformation, which are two different things. One is deliberate, right? Somebody is trying to deliberately uh, curate the information that you're receiving to produce a certain action. And then the other thing is just, you know, misinformation is happenstance. People sharing things back and forth and, you know, they didn't know that it wasn't true or they thought it was a valid source or information is just presented as presented as fact and in actuality it's not so some one part is malicious the other one is not it's just misinformation and particularly for people of african descent in this country particularly for black voters we've seen over the last couple of elections that we have been a target of misinformation and disinformation people were creating whole Facebook campaigns and all of these different things to really target us, the people who engage in this conversation, who vote and participate. There's a reason why people are targeting us for this information. And I could not let another election cycle come upon us without us having a centering moment and stopping. And then you deciding for yourself, based upon the guests that I'm presenting to you this morning, how are you going to change your behavior in terms of the news and the opinion and all of the information that you receive, the content that is put before you? And particularly as it pertains to this election cycle, where you will have the opportunity um, to vote people in, vote people out, ask different questions. I want you to be armed with a, a basis of how you're going to evaluate the information that these candidates, that the government, that certain a number of different entities are presenting before you and you make an informed decision. Because here's the reality. We're all consuming this information. We're all on social media apps of, you know, of different varying things. And I'm not just talking about Twitter, right? Like people are on Facebook. They're sharing information in their group chat. They're sharing information in WhatsApp, right? So you can say, I don't have a Twitter account. I don't have a Facebook account. Well, you in a group chat on WhatsApp and people are sharing articles and things of that nature and you're still consuming content. You are still having conversations with family or coworkers about something that happened that someone else saw on the news or presented. So you are still consuming that information. And so you need a level set. We all need a level set in terms of how we're consuming this information, how we're sharing it, and what we do with that information once we consume it.
And so to have that conversation, I'm having it with none other than the architect of this Sunday morning lineup. And the reason why I'm on SiriusXM Urban View Channel 126 in the first place is Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. She's also a professor at Hunter College and she teaches journalism. She's also the co-author of numerous New York Times bestselling books as well. Karen Hunter. I know you've listened to her all week and you're going to listen to her again this morning. And then also joining me is, I think, the first journalist to write a political article about me. I'll tell you the story in a minute. But Errol Lewis, who's a political anchor here in New York at Spectrum News, he's a columnist at New York Magazine. You may have seen him on CNN and MSNBC sometimes as well. He's also a professor of journalism at the City University of New York, the uh, Graduate School of Journalism. And so both of them will be having this conversation with me in this age of misinformation and disinformation. How do we properly guard our ourselves? What tools and resources do we pull in order to really evaluate the content that we are receiving so that we can make decisions that will appear on our ballot? So when we come back, we'll be joined by Karen Hunter. We'll be right back. Who is the T-Shop? I will let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, and we are going to talk about this morning misinformation, disinformation, how to have a baseline of media literacy as you are consuming content and getting ready to take action. You may be taking action in a couple of months. You may be voting. You may be participating in a a number of different conversations and maybe (laughs) traveling to your state capitol or your city council and engaging on issues. But it's really important uh, to have some baseline of media literacy to understand and evaluate the information that you are receiving. And you know who has something to say about that? Of course, Karen Hunter from here on Sirius XM Urban View, who I wanted to bring on to have this conversation. And she just dived right in. And then also joining us is Errol Lewis, who's a political anchor here in New York at Spectrum News. But he's also a columnist at New York Magazine and also um, appears on CNN. He's a CNN contributor. So both of them couldn't wait to have this conversation, starting with Karen um, about uh, media literacy and the information that we're receiving. Karen just jumped right in. I feel like, you know, there are people who are in corporate media right now um, who are playing by the rules of algorithms and clicks because their salaries are dependent upon them playing by these rules. Uh, And it may not at all apply to Errol Lewis, who is on a public, more of a public facing public uh, access uh, channel, but for the vast majority, whether we're talking about CNN, MSNBC, which aren't news outlets, Fox, not a news outlet, local news now co-opted by organizations that have an agenda, right? So your local news is looking different. I don't know where people are getting news. NPR, you know, you know, John Stewart, you know, I, you know, and it's sad that we live in a day where we cannot depend on the people who call themselves journalists to actually get it right because their salaries are tied to the clicks and the algorithms and the ratings, right? You know, I was just having this conversation with Dr. Carr today. One of the benefits of being on SiriusXM is that it's not a Nielsen's rated, it's satellite, it's not Nielsen's rated. Initially, because I came from terrestrial radio, it was a hindrance because how do you sell 
advertising when you don't have any numbers, right? And that's been the biggest issue, right? So we do a lot of direct marketing on SiriusXM, as you notice, which is not lucrative. So let me say I'd probably make 20 times more money in terrestrial radio, but I stay at Sirius because it gives me the freedom and the flexibility to not be driven by algorithms and clicks and ratings. So I get to tell the truth. I get to fact check in real time. I get to say the things that need to be said. People may be uncomfortable with it, but you can't say, oh, well, the ratings have dipped, so we have to get rid of the show. You get rid of the shows because you don't like me, that's fine. Right. <laughs> you know, that's fine. But fortunately, you know, we have the freedom to be able to, to, to assess things in real time and not be driven by whose toes am I stepping on? I lost my position at MSNBC because I said something that the, the executives didn't like, you know? And so I was like, I thought you were, okay. I didn't realize, okay, so there is an agenda here too, you know? So right. I, I would hate growing up right now as a young person and even as an older person without the knowledge that I have about media because it is absolutely ripe for you to be brainwashed, gaslit, misinformed, and radicalized. It is too easy now. Well, I think, you know, to your point in terms of Sirius XM, right, it's one of those entities, it, when I think about free speech and people having the ability to say what they want and sort of listen, like Sirius XM has that, right? You can go to any particular channel, <laughs> you know, and if your politics skew one way, if you just want to focus on music, if you want to like, you know, listen to stories to go to bed, like it, it is the sort of source where you can get all that you want and there doesn't seem to be this silencing based upon you know what what executives say or what you know what have you now i'm not in independent obviously my show is on sirius xm i very rarely deal with anybody at sirius xm that's not you like in the um and the team so but i do appreciate having the ability to just you know talk what i want without any overbearing of you need to have this person you know you can't say that you can't right. you know right that's I mean, when people call up, I don't like you. I'm like, there's 130, I think, 120 something other channels you can turn, you know, up the dial, down the dial, find something that you like. The problem with that, the problem with that though, is that you, we are all curating our music, our our news, our information. We're curating our engagement, and that puts us in silos that in bubbles that make it impervious to to really knowing what's going on. You know, when I was coming up, it was Walter Cronkite, David Brinkley, you know, six o'clock. My home was a, a Walter Cronkite home, you know? Mm -hmm. So at six o'clock, my dad had on channel two, which is CBS. And I was watching Walter Cronkite. We trusted Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite wasn't giving us left or right pers perspectives. He wasn't doing, you know, he was telling you what was happening, you know? And you trusted it. Now people get to curate. So if you watch Fox, you're missing a whole swath of things that are going on in the world. If you're only watching CNN, you're still missing a whole swath of things that are going on in the world. Yeah. If you only read one particular, you know, news outlet on online, you're missing. Even that's being curated based on clicks and algorithms and the ability to make money. Right. Well, I want to bring Errol Lewis into the conversation as we're talking about that, because what's interesting is that both of you are teaching the next generation of journalists. And for those of us who are, I double down and say, I am not a journalist. I have not been trained as a journalist. I'm very specific in when I'm providing an opinion versus when I'm providing 
you know, this is information, this is how things work versus here is my opinion that's leaning democratic because that's what I am. Like I try to be clear about that. But for those who are not trained journalists who are trying to understand something news or fact versus someone's opinion, how do you do that in this age, Errol? Well, look, you've got to understand the provenance of any piece of information that you're going to consume. It's uh, almost at the level of what you would do if you went to a fresh foods market or into a supermarket. You've got to look at the ingredients. You don't just stuff it into your body. You might be allergic to it. It might cause a reaction. It might poison you. Even young students, I think, are given some levels of training in this digital age about, for example, Wikipedia, that if anybody can post to it, you don't know where that information is coming from. And so you can use it for certain kinds of guidance. But at my son's school, for example, in middle school, they were not allowed to cite it as research, that it, it could it could guide you a little bit, but you couldn't say that, well, I saw this on Wikipedia, so it must be true. And some version of that, I think, has to apply across the board, you know, and uh, it, it changes from age to age. But I remember being very young and they explained the New York Times to us and how what was the most important thing would be in the rightmost corner of the broadsheet newspaper. And what was second most important would be at the other end. And what was above the fold, because the newspaper was folded, was more important than what was below the fold. And that's a very important uh, sort of uh, graphical representation of what's important and what's noteworthy that they would present to you. But if you didn't know that, you wouldn't really uh, have access to that level of discernment. And something like that really has kind of uh, transferred into the digital age. If something was put before you because of an algorithm or because some of your friends and family members all clicked on it, you need to know that. It's not because it's newsworthy in the sense of some editor making an editorial judgment and then sending you the article. It's because a certain universe of people. And if you don't know who that universe of people is, then you're kind of getting some random information. And so it's it, unfortunately, with all of the power of the digital age comes uh, uh, a, a need to really sort of step up and understand where all of this stuff is coming from so that you can make a determination and a judgment about what is objective fact with uh, context supplied by whoever put those facts in front of you, as opposed to opinion, which sometimes is clearly marked, but oftentimes is not. As you may know, uh, Joy, I've, I've been an opinion journalist since I was a teenager. And so I don't really make these fine distinctions because uh, someone's judgment, their discretion in putting a certain set of facts before you is every bit as much an act of analysis and opinion as officially writing an op-ed or an editorial. And so, you know, I think we, we've all got to be on, on our toes at all times and aware that People are making judgments about the information, the context in which it sits, and what you should do if there's a call to action at the end of that uh, information. And that, you know, I think goes far beyond whether or not there's a title on it saying this is factual, quote unquote, news or this is opinion. Karen, you know, we're getting ready to, to head into the fall where, I mean, all of our political <laughs> news, you can look at a lot of different sources where people are distrustful of government, they're distrustful of um, what is happening. Be and I, I think it's partly because 
of the information that people are receiving, whether it be on social media, they see people mm -hmm. arguing and, you know, discussing different issues. And some people just want to just, you know, disconnect from it. But our political discourse is going to, you know, tip higher because we're going into a presidential election cycle. And I am often asked for people how do I evaluate like what is happening? Like was was Hunt, was Hunter Biden smoking crack in the White House? Like because that's what yeah. okay, <laughs> like that's what that's what Facebook told me. Right? I keep, <laughs> the the question I keep coming back to is it, even so, there's cocaine found in the White House. Hunter Biden is a whole mess. Is he president? You know, like I always say this as it relates to the political landscape. You live somewhere. What, what does your community need? What do you need in your community? What do you need and require of the politicians that you may or may not vote for? It can't just be this, I like this person. I want to have a beer with this person. This person, see, I feel seen with this person. What do you need? Can this person get it done? Yes or no? It's strategy. It's, it's, not, it's not emotion. But unfortunately, I think, you know, this, this, this media is leaning, is, it forces us into emotions, right? The algorithms only work when we're angry and agitated and upset. You know, that's how, you know, I, I was told this a long time ago when I first got on Twitter, you got to let the trolls get in there and fight. Stephen A told me that let them fight with each other and then your people will come. And that's how you get a following. And I thought at the time, this was ridiculous. He was absolutely right. And it's still ridiculous, right? That we are here, that that is the, the metric by which we become, you know, uh, successful on social media. To Errol's point, as he was talking, I was wondering where do people go if they're not going to Wikipedia? You know, who's who's making the determination about where people go to get information? And then I realized curation is everything. So those of us who are in this space better damn well curate for people. So at least they have some place to go that they can trust, right? So if it's Errol, if it's me, I'm definitely going to tell you the truth. If I get it wrong, I'm going to correct myself in real time or a day later, but I'm not going to let a lie sit out there. I'm going to invite different people on, but not to fight, but to correct the record. And if you can't, if you're not doing that with your journalism, then you're not a journalist. And I think the definition of journalism should change too, Errol. I, I feel like, you know, you talk about broadsheets versus tabloids, which is the way papers fold. No one has a paper anymore. So I haven't stopped teaching now. I used to bring papers and show them, this is why this is a broadsheet and this is the bug the fold. And this, none of that even matters anymore because everything is scrolled, scroll, scroll, scroll. So now even as teachers, I was telling Joy before you came on, L. Joy Williams, I've had to change and shift. Everything right now is about creating good citizens. So I'm starting with like propaganda, the book, you know, uh, Ed Bernays and BS by, you know, Frankfurt. And, you know, we're having conversations about bias. So I'm going to have classified X as a film that we're going to watch because I need them to engage in media through the lens of a human being that cares about human beings. And that's what we need in, a, in the next generation of journalists, not people who know how to write an inverted pyramid or how to construct a sentence properly. But we need humans uh, who care about, you know, the future of this world to, to pick up a pen or whatever we're doing, typing and, and uh, assessing what's newsworthy and what's not. Well, I mean, both of you are journalists, trained journalists. And so I always ask journalists the question on where, if you're not sourcing a story and speaking directly to people to sort of create content, where are you getting yours? <laughs> your news and information from? Uh, well, I mean, look, I'm old school, so I subscribe to, um, and I mostly work uh, on local political news in New York. So I subscribe to all of the local papers, including some of the suburban ones. Um, not, I can't swear that I've read every news article every day, but I make an effort. 
Um, and, and some of the social media tools are actually very valuable. If you use your hashtags and your lists properly, you can absorb a lot of information or at least get the gist of it. Um, the, the, the other sources that I use are, I, I'm, I'm big into cities. So I have subscriptions to the Boston Globe and the Chicago Tribune. I want to know what's going on in cities. Uh, that's just a sort of a personal preference. And I find that it enables me to sort of get into the regional economy that's tied to each of those cities. If you want to know what's happening in the Northeast or the Midwest, or I have a subscription to the LA Times, they're actually very good on the entertainment industry. So you can, you can sort of absorb uh, quite a lot. That plus some surfing is about all I can do as far as my, my basic information diet. And then almost everything else is put in front of me because I'm part of a team and we are trying to cover a particular beat. And that requires delving into a lot of uh, particular uh, stories that present themselves. And we don't really have a lot of options about whether or not we're going to, to, to follow up on them. And I guess finally, I still do have a little bit of affection for some of the more scholarly journals. So I still read, you know, a lot of the magazines like The Nation and The Atlantic uh, and The New Yorker um, and New York Magazine, which I write for. But but I also dip once in a while into some of the academic stuff because some of it is actually very good. I mean, when democracy was under attack starting in 2017 or arguably 2016, uh, the political scientists really rose to the occasion and began digging up a lot of history, talking about dynamics of what happens when democracies fail or when um, uh, authoritarians rise in places like Hungary. It's really been quite interesting. And they've had a, a string of, of good books and, and solid conferences, and academic papers that I've been kind of looking at because you, you really do have to once in a while step back and try and look at the whole forest and see where things are going and look at where history is going to place us as far as the defense of democracy, which very much like Karen says, that's that's the story. That's that's the the agenda right now. Yeah. Karen. Uh, well, uh, I have to admit this. So, so first, honestly, I follow the money. So the first what I watch is CNBC. So I'm, I'm going to watch the Squawk Box in the morning. I'm going to see what what the stock market is about to open. And that kind of informs in terms of me, in terms of like the temperature. When people start talking about the economy, I'm, I'm there. Dr. Carr has me reading the Financial Times. So I have a subscription to that. FT, I, I do that. I'm scanning the headlines there. Uh, most of my news came from Twitter before um, that thing took over the apartheid um, criminal. Squad. Apartheid squad. People the, thug, the apartheid thug took over um, the, the dumpster fire um, because the hashtags to, to Errol's point would give me what was trending. Right. So so this is what so let me just check out what's trending. And I would lean into like a Michael Harriet, you know, want to see what his what, he, what, what he's uh, coming up with, because he's going to. Give me, because I'm looking at things right now through an us lens, right? So I want to know how it affects us. And I want to know what I can do to, to make sure. So I'm not acting as a journalist when I'm picking and choosing the things that I'm consuming. I'm acting as somebody that wants to change the dynamic of this. Like, want, I want to dismantle this, this mess right now and put it back together. So I'm looking for stories like that. And I'm reading a lot. So I'm reading a lot of books, too. So And, and then those send me down rabbit holes as I, you know, discover different people. Now I'm like, all right, research, research, research. But it's really hard. I can't trust the times. I'm be honest with you. I, maybe I'll get a great story from TMZ. And but then I have to go down a rabbit hole with several sources. And I and I do this with my team too, because I have producers like, where'd you get this? What give me a second or third source? You know, we they've been caught out there a few times giving me stuff that I'm like, 
just because CNN had it or AP had it, because there have been a few times recently, AP and Reuters repeated something that was on some, you know, butt crack sports or something. I was like, <laughs> the, the, the title was butt crack sports and you're repeating it. <laughs> are we here? Is this where we are right now? Right, AP, right. Reuters, come on now. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and, you know, at the top of the show, I talked about this, that I did a hard stop of not watching the 24 hour news anymore. So, and then for, um, during the winter, I read my news every morning. So I would get up, you know, get the kids all ready or whatever, whether it was I was at home or at the office, descriptions you're talking about, Errol, I had them digitally. And so I would read, you know, the, the news, like what's happening in New York, then look at LA Times and Kansas City, it's like all on. So I have something of like 122 subscriptions of different, you know, sources. And one, it was hard in the beginning because it forces you to slow down um, because you're used to just turn on the TV and they're going to tell me, but I got tired of the same five stories being repeated all you know day. And I was like, I want to know what else is happening. Um, and so it was hard in the beginning for that discipline to read um, because I'm trying to discipline myself to get back to long form reading. Um, but then it was like when I, I would only turn on the cable news if something major nationwide was happening that required yeah. you to, you know, to watch. And I realized I didn't need to have it on all day and listening to the same five stories and everybody commenting their opinion on the thing that I could read and digest. And even if I found out the next day, it wasn't as if I was finding out, you know, the all of the banks failed the next day. <laughs> like it was, you know, like I could consume and sort of understand things that are better. And it actually prompted prompted better discourse on policy or on politics or whatever, because I had a very broad understanding of what was happening um, and also could separate the fact of what happened, which is tell me what happened first and then tell me what you think about, <laughs> about yeah. it, which is how I like consuming things. Just give me the facts first. What happened? Oh, okay. This, you know, like this was found here, this location after this investigation. And here's the details. Here's the link to the, like to, to it. And then I can make opinion based upon that. Um, I realize everybody doesn't have the capacity to do that, but at least when you are triggered to respond in anger, in protest or something, that, that thought to, let me stop. Let me see where the sources are. Let me see what actually happened, what the fact was for before I go into the opinion, I think is valuable. Definitely valuable to do that. Karen, I know you got to go. Errol, I'm keeping you. Um, but Karen, thanks so much for- oh, My pleasure. For um, great work, Sunday Civics and the whole team, June. I'll read Daniel Favors when she pops in as well. You guys are doing God's work, which you've been doing. And I think equally as important, um, this is media as well. You know, you may not be a trained journalist, but you are a formed journalist because you care about people getting the information. And that's all to me is what a journalist is today is somebody getting it right and caring enough to make sure people are informed with the truth. So thank you for the work that you do. And Errol, you too. Uh, nice seeing you. It's been a while. You too. It has. Good to see you. All right. We'll take one quick break and we'll be right back. How can it be? Hey, it's Elle Joy. We're back here on Sunday Civics with Errol Lewis 
who joined in in the middle of our conversation with Karen. I've wanted you on the show for a long time. Grateful that we finally made it happen. And, you know, I'm listing all of the different jobs that Errol has now. But when I met Errol for the first time here in Brooklyn, he was a writer for the now defunct New York Sun. And he gave me my first lesson in dealing with journalists, which is not to just talk to a journalist with like all of the information because he will write about it. <laughs> and so I had to bring it up. Um, the, the byline in the New York Sun, youngster in an old party. And this is back when I revived Brooklyn Young Democrats. And you wrote an article that got me a call at seven in the morning from the then Brooklyn political boss because I said something and Errol wrote about it. So Errol Lewis. <laughs> Was that Clarence Norman at the time? That was Clarence Norman, yes. <laughs> I just ran into him the other day. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So that I had to bring that piece of history <laughs> to the front of the class. You know, you know, there's this, a bit of a story even behind that. I, I had a col political column that was supposed to be a wrap-up of things that were happening in New York politics, but it was placed in the Monday paper, which meant every Sunday afternoon, I was desperate. I was like, oh my God. No offices are open. Nobody's going to answer the phone. If I didn't, if I didn't catch it by you know Friday afternoon, it was you know you had to put in a lot of brain power. And so I think this was probably one of those times when I either noticed something that you were doing or gave you a call or something. And those weekend columns, I'll tell you, it was a real stress test. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember taking that photo. As a matter of fact, I mean, we we, we just. <laughs> We didn't have a lot of options. And so right. it's a very practical business. We do what we must. Well, since this is your first time on the show, I want to ask you the question I actually ask every guest to share, which is to share the story of your first civic action. Oh, it's a good, it's a good question. You know, I, I was a member of the youth branch of the NAACP when I was growing up, and that was arguably sort of civic. But what I remember is the first time I actually you know, did a demonstration, a protest to try and make something happen was on campus. When I was a freshman, there were a couple of different issues and I got involved in some of them. There was one immediate issue, which is about having a third world center, a center for, you know, black and Latino and, and other students of color at Harvard in the early 1980s. And we did a couple of protests around that. But the real issue, the one that I actually got most deeply involved in, was the fight to have the university divest from companies doing business in then apartheid South Africa. And Free Nelson Mandela was, was the chant, it was the hope, it was the whole point of the exercise. And that was in the mid 80s. And I, I attacked my professors and attacked my fellow students and tried to encourage and annoy people. And we did all of those things, did a hunger strike. We had petitions read on the floor of the United Nations in support of us. And the, the circle, of course, was complete many years later in 1990, standing on the streets in lower Manhattan, screaming my head off as the motorcade came up the Canyon of Heroes with the first black mayor, David Dinkins, in a motorcade beside Nelson Mandela, who, you know, truth be told, when we were in college, when I was writing and protesting and hunger striking and everything else, we thought he was going to die in prison. It was really a matter of principle. We thought it was the right thing to do, but we didn't think it was going to succeed. And so I had a big aha moment years later when I was like, oh, you know what? If you keep fighting and you really stick to your guns and you try and stand on principle, you know, sometimes you actually win. Yeah. You know what's interesting? I think there needs to be 
a resurgence of the activism. I don't know if there's been a real modern day storytelling or documentary or movie or anything about the massive organizing surrounding the uh, apartheid in South Africa and freeing Nelson Mandela. I think it's completely disconnected from sort of a modern society of like that massive amount of organizing that take, took place and juxtaposing that with sort of Black Lives Matter or whatever, which was also a international massive response to injustice. Right. Well, you know, we, we, we always have a hard time getting the perspective on it, really, because I remember in the 1990s, I was doing some work with the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce and newly freed or newly post-apartheid South Africa sent over an envoy, commercial envoy, to sort of talk with the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce. And we met the guy. And like many of the people who were leaders in government at the time, he was a freedom fighter. He had spent a lot of time protesting and in jail and everything else. And I quietly told him off to the side, I said, you know, you know, I'm very happy to see you. I was one of those protesters, you know, who one of the many, many who had, had done this and we didn't even think it was going to work. And he said, oh, no, on the contrary, you guys, we owe you a great debt. I mean, people should not think that the little protest that they're doing um, has no impact because it, it, it really does. And, you know, there's nobody to tell you that what you're doing is going to end up in the history books. But um, oftentimes it is. And anybody who was part of those Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 absolutely made history. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm finally old enough to like recognize that and see it as it's happened. There's no question about it. Well, speaking of that, like as uh, you know, you're now viewing the world in a different perspective, right? Even I am. I'm like older and I have younger folks in NAACP who come with the rah-rah and I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, you know, because you have experience, you're older and you're like, you know, come, let me tell you something of how this fits into the context. But I'm also mindful and try to recenter myself, right? That you eventually become what is viewed as the establishment. Right. And that there is this space for young people to push people to a demand that seems crazy or a tactic that, you know, you wouldn't have done. But you're also coming from a perspective as a journalist of being able to tell the story and making the decision on the way I tell this story will have a great impact on what is happening. Right. It may cause people to retreat it may cause people you know it may throw flame on the fire like how do you make those decisions as you're as you as you mentioned of a an opinion journalist right like how do you make the decision on and and, and take on that responsibility well look it's a it's a little bit like um uh, i would think of it as um, almost like being um a, a creative artist meaning you put your version of the world out there what you know what you think you know what you hope for what you think might be helpful you understand it's not for everybody some people are, you know, what you think is beautiful music, some people are going to call noise. What you think is a, a wonderful poem, people are going to say they don't understand it. You know, so I, I try to bring to the journalism that I do and the opinions that I, I put out there and the analysis, which is really more of what it is, some historical perspective and just let people know. It's like, look, the world didn't start yesterday. You know, like, like you should you should try and understand some of the dynamics and, you know, here are some numbers and some thoughts and some analysis. And I've spent some time thinking about this and talked to a lot of people who know more about it than I do. And here's my tentative conclusion, which I bring to you in good faith with humility. And I invite you to in engage in a dialogue and discussion and see if we can make something good happen. If you find it helpful, great. If you don't find it helpful, pass it on to somebody else who might. Um, and then I'll try again next week. You know, that's the life of a, of a columnist. I think it's the, the way it's supposed to go. 
you know, over time, you actually do find some people who have a taste for history and a taste for analysis and who get some kind of help from knowing that what they're doing has a history. Like, I, I'll give you one of my examples is there's a church that you know well, Joy, called the House of the Lord Pentecostal Church. It's on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. And it's one of these places where almost, you know, like all political roads in black politics seem to lead through the House of the Lord Church, at least New York politics. So I wrote I wrote a couple of columns about it, just kind of trying to explain to, you know, what it was. I used to go there quite a lot. But there was a scholar in residence who, after he did his graduate work, was there giving lectures from time to time. His name was Cornell West. There were people who came through there. The chief of staff to the pastor was a guy named Charles Barrett, who went on to become a very successful local elected official, very fiery and effective local elected official. And at that same House of the Lord Church, where they were involved in all kinds of struggles against police brutality and, and a number of other issues, at one point, the pastor and some of the other leadership took a dozen young men down into the basement of the church. And one of them was, a, and, and told them they should join the police department and try and enact reform from within the police department. And one of those people was Eric Adams, who's now the mayor of New York City. Just James used to go by the church. She's now the attorney general of the state of New York, you know, on and on and on and on. So I, I just kind of offered this up and sort of told, tell people, it's like, look, what looked like at the time, a, a, just a, a Pentecostal church where, you know, attendance was sparse on any given Sunday, where the, the minister, the, the pastor, uh, the Reverend Herbert, Herbert Daughtry was seen as, as tilting at windmills, calling for changes that were not likely to happen, getting involved in controversies where a, a lot of people felt he was being divisive, you know, mm -hmm. and you sit and you watch and it turns out his daughter, Leah Daughtry, is one of the only people that have ever done this. She organized not one, but two, the main organizer, the person who put it all together, a Democratic National Conventions. Just, I, th I just find that stuff fascinating. I find it very interesting. And I, like I said, I, I hope that activists would find it helpful because the, the, the many different political activities that came out of it, the National Black United Front, the church itself, the number of people who came through there and ended up doing uh, activity far and wide. My good friend, the Reverend Eugene Rivers, who introduced me to the church, went on to start and have a very successful career of his own as an activist up in Boston, doing groundbreaking work, some of the anti-violence work that's now being copied all over the country. But it's just lots and lots of stuff. And it, it really goes to prove what you know what you want people to understand, which is that what you're doing locally can be part of something really, really big, and you won't necessarily perceive it at the time. But that shouldn't necessarily change anything that you're doing other than that you should take it seriously. Again, I, I offer it to the young people. I offer it to the activists. Some hear it, most don't. Some reject it. Some don't care. Uh, all of that is fine. Uh, you know, I, I try to write the things that I wish somebody had told me uh, back when I was getting involved in a lot of stuff. I picked up some of it from talking with people. That's why I like to be a journalist. You, you talk to some of the older folks and they, they school you a little bit. And over time, with some luck and some reading, you you start making connections and, and putting together a much bigger story. Ooh, I have another question I've always wanted to ask. And I wanted to ask this question on Twitter to see, you know, would other New York political journalists <laughs> sort of chime into this conversation? But 
those who cover politics on a local level, right, where you have, let's say, greater access to elected officials than you would if you were in the press corps at the White House, right, or covering national politics. I would argue, and you know, you can tell me if you agree, if you're doing local politics, you have more access and information on a local level than you do, you know, covering politics nationally. But is it just our appearance But it does seem as if the beat of a local political reporter is to catch an elected official in something. It doesn't (laughs) like, I mean, that's the the way it is like always, and maybe it's because I follow too many of y'all on Twitter, but it always always seems as if like that, that is the beat. It's just like, ah, I found it. They were hiding this. And I didn't, no, no, no. I'm like, Listen, I have my own opinions and hesitation and everything about the current mayor or some other elected officials or whatever. And I'm like, dang, is he that bad? (laughs) Is anything good happening? Let let, let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, the difference between local and national is not nearly as great as you might imagine, right? Almost every national public official started out as a local official, right? And um, in in the case of of Donald Trump, as a matter of fact, you got to keep in mind, when he first announced his campaign in 2015, most of the national news organizations thought he was going nowhere. And so they would pick, they picked up some of the guys in room nine, the guys and gals, the reporters in room nine, the local political press corps and say, okay, you know, this guy, you cover him until his campaign inevitably dissolves or collapses. Well, that didn't happen. And they all became White House reporters. So now Josh Dawsey from the Washington Post, he was a city hall reporter in, in New York City. Uh, Maggie Haberman, who's won a Pulitzer Prize and done everything else as a, as a Trump reporter. She was at the Daily News. Jonathan Lemire, who's big on NBC now, I think he was at the Daily News also. All of these folks, these are like, this is our local tribe of political reporters. So I just, just with that as a caveat. But yes, yeah, certainly, look, locally, I've known most of, especially if you hang around for a while, I've known most of the local elected officials since before either of us had our current jobs. And I've known many of them since before they got elected to any office. I mean, like any office at all. And that's true for Eric Adams, Tish James, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, all of these people I knew as, you know, they were like like I was, you know, like you're just like sort of a scrub there on the side of the scene trying to figure out where and how you get into it. Um, And they had great success. I think your perception may be skewed by the fact that New York, I have to say, and some of this has been measured, we have more kind of ethics and corruption issues than most other jurisdictions, even if you adjust for population. I mean, you know, there I, I forgot what the number was. I think there were five or six consecutive majority leaders of our state Senate who ended up in prison. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's not a great record. Um, there's any number of county leaders here in Brooklyn. Um, you mentioned Clarence Norman a little while ago. He got out of prison a long time ago, but he had a very rocky road. And, um, you know, there were some who thought it was trumped up charges. I happen to fall in that category, but he did run afoul of the law. It's true of a lot of politicals in uh, in New York. And so your, perspe- your perspective is probably skewed by the fact that um, our assembly speaker, Sheldon Silver, went to prison. We've had, we've had, I mean, you know, our, 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 uh, our state controller, Alan Hevesy, all of these guys went to prison. Some of them died in prison. We had an assemblyman, um, you know, Tony Seminario, he died in prison. It's very sad. Um, there's, there's a lot of that. And so, you know, it's not, it's not your, 
you know, don't don't blame it on the media. <laughs> we we didn't it's indict them. The media. We didn't indict them. We didn't convict them. We didn't sentence them. <laughs> they did all of that themselves. We were just here to tell the story. Um, and, and and then you know, and, and then also, I mean, look, you you know because you're a local activist, um, and you know a lot of the same people I know. We so I'll drag you in this with us. Uh, we know a lot more about the personal lives of these characters than I want than would or will <laughs> or should ever end up in the newspaper, right? Yeah. I mean, people are people. People have entanglements. They have girlfriends. They have drinking problems. They use drugs, all of that stuff. And none of that goes away just because you have been elected to an office. And so I pride myself. You, you can look at all my stuff online. You will not find me trafficking in any of that stuff. Although I know I know a whole lot uh, about how these people are living their private lives. I think it's important to make a distinction. Something that is of public of importance. Like if you stole some money from the public, that's a whole different category right. than, you know, who you're cheating on your wife with or something right. like that. If uh, I saw your car in front of another brownstone last night, like I, I I'm big hey, in it. Don't ask me <laughs> tell. I mean, I mean, seriously, for me, the, the, the question is always, it's like, listen, did they break a law? Did they violate a trust, a public trust? You know, if they violated some relationship with their spouse, that's between them. But, you know, what what matters to the public in general and my viewers or readers in particular? And it, that really kind of narrows it down. And believe me, you put aside everything else, who drinks too much or anything else, there's plenty left over that's yeah. worth writing about. And I think that's the perception you're seeing. Yeah. Well, as we close with Errol Lewis, um, a political anchor at Spectrum News and a political columnist and also a professor of the next generation of journalists at the City University of New York, the School of Journalism, you know, just this final question about media literacy. I think it's really important for people to have a baseline of how to evaluate what they're consuming, right? And you and both you and Karen, you know, talked about how you do it individually, suggestions on what people can do. I like to end with some action, you know, and yeah. to hear from you, like what, even going into this heightened political season, what is a way, what are some suggestions on how people should, you know, guide themselves as they see yes. this content coming across majority of the time, their screen, you know, whether it be in their hand or on their desktop. Right. I'm so glad you asked. Um, what I would urge everyone to do is um, take very seriously the idea that even what you might consider a straight comment or an opinion you're throwing out at the water cooler at work, uh, assuming anybody even does that anymore, or, uh, or, or uh, you know, at your local bar or at a cocktail party, it's real. it really, really matters because um, there's a book I would recommend to everyone called The Myth of the Rational Voter where they present some of the statistics that are depressing to know about, but important to know about, which is that fewer than half of all Americans know who their member of Congress is. Fewer than half of all Americans know that there are two senators for every state. 70% of Americans don't know how long the term of those U.S. senators lasts. There's a lot of really, really basic information that people don't know. And we don't have to wring our hands about it or decry it or anything. It's, it's simply what it is. I think it's uh, somewhat anthropological, meaning people in our in our little tribe of 300 plus million people, uh, we assign to others responsibility for knowing some things that that you don't necessarily feel like 
uh, investing your time in. It's just true. It's called, in political science terms, it's called rational ignorance, meaning I don't know how my car really works. I can change the tire and that's about it. Everything else, I'll take it to somebody who knows what they're doing, or I'll ask somebody who knows how cars work. Um, a lot of people, a surprisingly large number of people are exactly that way about who they should vote for, for their local offices or even for president of the United States. They are relying on you, uh, the, the viewers of Sunday Civics, the people who are active, do read the paper, the people who are trying to keep up with this and really get their me media literacy up to a higher level. You've got to keep in mind that there are a lot of people who are depending on you. They're not necessarily going to say it. Um, I'll give you by analogy. Uh, something like 2% of the American public ever donates blood. But all of the, that donated blood is for all of us. And it keeps the whole population healthy when you have to go to the hospital and get blood transfusions for one reason or another. Uh, fewer, less than one half of 1% of the country is serving in active duty military positions. And they're keeping the whole nation safe. And even if you added in all of the veterans, that only gets you up to about 7%. A small group of people takes care of the rest. It is how our society works. And it is essential that you understand that your understanding of civics puts you in that category. You're like the blood donor. You're like the members of the military. You're like the small group that is going to sort of have to try and protect and safeguard and take care of the rest. And to that extent, I think people should feel empowered. You've got leverage. You know, you're going to bring a lot of people along. They're not necessarily going to tell you that, but they're going to ask you and you should be free with your knowledge and you should be waiting for the question. When is election day? Who should I vote for? What's the difference between Republicans and Democrats? Who's this candidate? On and on and on and on. You know, take that job seriously because a lot of people are depending on it. And that to me is how we really start to restore the balance. You know, there's this textbook notion that somehow... Every American adult is going to register to vote, understand the issues, rank the candidates, understand all of the different issues. It's just not going to happen. Um, they're going to outsource a lot of that to you. And so to the extent that you're ready for that assignment, um, please be ready for it. Don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. Don't scold anybody about it. Just learn as much as you can and try and figure out some ways to, to talk to the people around you who are going to be waiting for all the information that I know you're going to bring to Harold, thank you so much. I'm glad we finally got you on. <laughs> and, Anytime. Um, I appreciate it. And thank you so much. That is a great call to action for people to understand their role for, you know, your family that call you when they in the booth and ask you who, who we voting for again, because exactly. that's what happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Errol. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Sunday Civics. We'll be back next Sunday with more civic education that you can use to take action. Thank you.